Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Two of the region's largest health care providers, Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health, have proposed a merger. The Federal Trade Commission has objected, and testimony was heard this week in federal court. WITS Ben Allen was in the courtroom and is here with us today to report on what he heard. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. And uh, it is my duty to tell you, and I think most people who listen to this program on a regular basis realize that uh, both both Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health are financial supporters of not only this program, but others on WITF. So wanted to make sure that everyone is aware of that. Uh, so, Ben, remind us what this case is all about. So this case is Penn State Health, which is Penn State Hershey and a number of other uh, doctor's practices. So really think of Penn State Hershey Medical Center. And it wants to merge with Pinnacle Health. Pinnacle Health is has three hospitals, uh, Harrisburg Hospital, Community Osteopathic uh, in the Harris area, and also uh, the West Shore Hospital just over uh, the bridge in Cumberland County. So they want to merge. Um, that would create four hospitals in the mid-state, a $2.7 billion organization. So when you think about health care in the mid-state, uh, that is one of the largest organizations, or would be one of the largest organizations in the mid-state. The argument against this uh, comes from the Federal Trade Commission and the State Attorney General's Office. They say, um, and this is their duty, the Federal Trade Commission reviews mergers. This is uh, part of the normal course of business here. They say this merger would, would create a monopoly. Um, that That is their the crux of the argument here. Uh, they say in four counties, Dauphin, Cumberland, Perry, and uh, Lebanon, um, they say this new organization would control 76% of the market. Um, and, uh, of course, we'll get into more of those arguments. But right now, they're in uh, in court uh, to ask a federal judge to temporarily block this merger. Uh, this is just like a, a regular court hearing um, to to get a federal judge to really intervene here and, and stop this merger. Now, um, the, uh, the, the ruling, whenever it does come down... Um, is kind of considered uh, the final say on the matter. Um, there are other tracks that could be pursued, administrative hearings, appeals, but um, this is kind of the the decision, if you will. Mm -hmm. What's the government's argument? Okay, so the government's argument is, let's look at those four counties again. That's Dauphin, Cumberland, Lebanon, and Perry. They say in those four counties, 76% of the market is would be controlled by this new organization. So as a result, costs will go up. Insurers testify that could be up to a 25% jump after this uh, a five-year period. Uh, and they, these insurers say, we can't market an insurance plan that doesn't have this new uh, entity, this new merged organization. They say, okay, maybe if these two were separate, maybe we could exclude Pinnacle, maybe we could exclude Penn State and use them against each other and get some competition going between them. But if they merge, we've got to have them in uh, in our plans, so in network. So we've got to take whatever price hike they they give us, um, because otherwise we don't have any plans to sell to consumers here. Consumers demand these these health systems if they if they were to merge. Um, the government also says Pinnacle and Penn State. 98% of the services they provide are the same. There's very little difference between the two. This is the government's argument. Very little difference between the two. They pulled out emails and documents that show just how competitive they are. 
One, one email, show, they talk about stealing market share from the other. We're going to build this hospital to steal market share from another. We're going to uh, build this cancer center to steal market share. We need to get these doctor's practices on board so we can get more market share. We need to talk about diverting patients from that hospital to this hospital so that we can uh, get more market share. So I think it would be hard to argue that... Um, there isn't some competition going on oh, just based on these I, these emails, documents, underwriting on WITF, billboards you see. There, there's very real competition. We can get into what Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health's argument is, is in a second. I, I want to I talk yeah. about that, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, you know, what you've just said about competition, I, I don't think that the average consumer, the average health consumer, realizes how much competition there is. Uh, I mean, it's not like your normal retail competition. Right. Although there are, just as you described with billboards and advertising and that kind of thing, it's not a whole lot different, but it's not as blatant as what you would see with a retail establishment. But these, make no mistake about it, there's competition amongst hospitals, and this is everywhere. This isn't yeah, just here yeah, in Central yeah. PA. Yeah, and, and that's what the federal government and the state attorney general's office says is this competition is good for consumers because then it drives prices down, it keeps those price hikes in check, if you will, and it improves quality because you don't want to be the hospital that has a bunch of infections going around. Right. Um, it improves, uh, it, it drives innovation because you want to be the hospital that has the next great big thing uh, that will attract more patients. So they say, Again, the federal government and the state attorney general's office speaking here, they say you set these two up, and as a result, consumers win. Uh, we'll get into right, let's, well, let's get into well, it. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about yeah. Penn State Health and Pinnacle. Obviously, uh, they have uh, their arguments for it. What, what are they saying? Right. So they're saying the government's wrong. They say, they, you know, the government has this all wrong. We don't just compete in Dauphin. Uh, Cumberland, Perry, and uh, and Lebanon counties. We compete far beyond this. We go. Penn State Health says we compete with Lancaster General and Lancaster. We compete with Geisinger and Danville, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. We compete with Wellspan in York. Look at where some of our patients come from. They come from long distances to get to our hospital. So we're not just competing in this in this four part area. Now, a fact that I do want to bring the, to the discussion here, Scott, is that ninety one percent, and this was brought forth by the federal government, ninety one percent of the people that go to Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health, 91% of their patients come from this four-county area. But Penn State Health says, and Pinnacle Health, that's limiting. That's not, we compete with far more. They say, we're overcrowded. That's, that's really the crux of their argument at this point, is Penn State uh, Health had an expert, their chief nursing officer, get on the stand yesterday, and she testified, we're nearly full. We don't have enough. We don't have enough beds for uh, all the patients that are coming in. Even when you consider the children's hospital that was built and or finished in 2013, even when you consider all these other <clears throat> adding four beds here and four beds there, we still don't have enough beds. So, as a result, Penn State Health is making the argument that they would need to build a 277 million dollar tower that's just full of beds, hundred plus beds for patients. But, and this is their argument, we merge with Pinnacle, 
Penn State Health merges with Medi- Pinnacle, they say, we don't need that. We don't need that tower. Pinnacle has extra space, so we can send patients down there, send patients to a Pinnacle hospital, and then the $277 million is savings for the consumer, because then we don't need to pass that on to the consumer. Again, this is their argument. Um, They also talk about how Hershey provides specialty care that Pinnacle doesn't. Hershey's an academic medical center. Far more people are transferred into Hershey compared to Pinnacle. And they say that Hershey doctors have a lot more subspecialties, so you know they they provide a different level of care. Pinnacle provides some care, but um, but Hershey is really known as that's where you want to go if you have a very tricky illness or disease. Why does this matter? It all comes down to cost. It all comes down to cost. This is going to affect prices, whether. The federal government or the a federal judge successfully blocks this, or whether um, Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health successfully win this case. Um, this will affect prices. When you think about it, you've you got to think about your choices at this point. If you live in these four counties, yes, you could go to Good Samaritan in Lebanon. You could go to uh, Holy Spirit, which is a Geisinger affiliate in Camp Hill. But for the most part, you're picking from these two hospitals um, or hospital systems, I should say. Um, Will there be just one health system to really pick from? Or will it be still the the setup as it is now? Um, The federal government argues you get 76% of the market, prices are going to go up because they are going, insurers are going to have to take those prices. Um, And then there's the argument about quality. This one uh, is a little tough to frankly understand, um, but the federal government is making the argument that. Uh, quality could be uh, not as high. Innovation could not be as high because competition may not be as fierce as it is right now. Penn State Health, Pinnacle Health say, well, we're still going to be competing with Lancaster General and Johns Hopkins, so we're going to keep our quality high and our innovation high. Um, let's say, let's walk down the theoretical road here just for a second, Scott. Um, if this merger uh, does go through, uh, let's say a federal judge allows it to go through, um, could a health system come here, another health system come here and try and steal market share? Um, could you see a Lancaster General maybe expand? Could you see Geisinger maybe expand? Um, this could have big, big, big implications for health care in the mid-state that's going to affect hundreds of thousands of people for years to come. Um, I realize this is not a sexy issue. Uh, healthcare mergers, hospital mergers are not uh, easy to understand, um, but uh, it all comes down to cost, I really think so. And, and yeah. just kind of some insight behind the scenes, right from the very beginning, well, this week when you said it yeah. on the case, you said this is much bigger than most people know. Yeah. And I think you just described why it is, because it does have, have an impact on so many people. When could a decision come down? So decision, uh, the hearing's been going on all week. Uh, I'm headed back to the courtroom right after this. Uh, could be about a month and a half, maybe even two months before a decision. And then, of course, this is just like every court proceeding. You can have appeals. This thing could be dragged out for uh, much longer. Scott, let's just lay out the timeline for just a second. The the proposed merger was the proposal came in 2014 or here in 2016 this may not be resolved if there are appeals until 2017 
you know, this could be uh, a long process. That also shows how invested these health systems are in this case. I've, I have never seen such a large collection of lawyers. Yeah, talk about yeah. that, because you, you've described <laughs> to me and others yeah. around here the courtroom setting. Yeah, I have never seen such a large collection of lawyers. Uh, there on both sides, on both sides, let's be fair here, there are a lot of lawyers. Um, there are 12 lawyers in the, for lack of a better way of describing it, the corral, if you will, um, where all the lawyers would sit. But then in the public benches, you got another 10 to 15 lawyers um, every day. Uh, so I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there are between 30 and 40 lawyers, high-priced lawyers from Washington, D.C. and New York City firms involved in this case. Uh, and that is on top of testimony that came yesterday that Penn State Health hired PricewaterhouseCoopers to do a PricewaterhouseCooper to do uh, an evaluation that involved between forty and sixty people for six months. Um, they hired a consultant that involved forty to sixty people. Imagine what one consultant costs, Scott. Forty to sixty people at PricewaterhouseCooper for six months of work. So. There is a lot of uh, financial interest in this case. Uh, both of these systems obviously want this to go forward because they are fighting in court. A lot of times, health systems either won't fight in court or will accept some kind of negotiation, mediation with the Federal Trade Commission. Um, it's wild. It, it really yeah, is. Exactly. It's, it's and, wild. And the case is being heard by federal judge John Jones, who many people are right. familiar with here in central Pennsylvania. He is uh, the uh, judge who made the decision in the Dover school board case, uh, the creationism uh, uh, case a few years Same ago. Same-sex marriage. Same-sex marriage. So he is used to some high-profile cases. Yeah, and he's an easygoing judge. Just to kind of lay one, one more scene for you, uh, Scott, a cell phone went off in the courtroom a couple days ago. In a district court, I don't think you would make it to the first ring before you were chucked out. Uh, he actually uh, let that let that go through. Well, so that's, that a, is a very easygoing uh, person. One other connection. I know you gotta you gotta move on, but one other connection that I did want to mention. One of the firms that's representing Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. Uh, is is uh, is Jones Day? Uh, Jones Day is the name of the firm. If that rings a bell for anyone listening, uh, it might be because Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump recently met with GOP leaders at a Washington D.C. law office. Whose law office was it? It was Jones Day's. Ben Allen, <laughs> a great description and reporting on this. And I can tell you're, you're looking forward to the courtroom again, oh, aren't you? you know, on a beautiful day, nothing like sitting in a windowless courtroom. <laughs> ben Allen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A bill that would legalize medical cannabis has finally passed the House and Senate and is now on its way to Governor Tom Wolf's desk for his signature. The governor has said he will sign the bill into law. Joining us is one of the medical marijuana's prime sponsors, Democratic Senator Dalen Leach, who represents parts of Delaware and Montgomery counties. Senator Leach, welcome back to the program. 
It's great to be with you again. All right. So this has been a, a, a long time coming. I don't know. It's being portrayed. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised at how it's being portrayed because it's being portrayed a win-win for, for everyone. Uh, a good example of bipartisanship, a good example of how minds were changed. Overall, looking back on this, now, granted, we don't have the governor's signature. How do you look at it? Uh, well, first, I would say we will have the governor's signature Sunday at 1 in the rotunda. There is a ceremony uh, that all the advocates will be coming to. But, um, yeah, no, it was a, a, a long journey. There were many times when we felt or that you could have at least rationally felt that this is over, we should give up. Uh, there were many obstacles in the way. Uh, and, and part of that is deliberate in terms of how the system is set up. Part of that is you know, just the way we function as a, as a government now. Uh, and part of it, it was just the, the nature of the issue. Um, but, you know, it, it, among the lessons I've learned throughout this uh, odyssey is the importance of perseverance, uh, the importance of when you come across an obstacle, try to find a way around it. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, uh, it, it still feels surreal to say it, but we got it done. So what got you interested in this issue? Well, you know, I mean, if you would ask me at any point in my life, I would have always been for it. I mean, it just seems like a no-brainer to me that uh, if people are sick and there's something that can make them better, they should have it. Um, however, uh, what really be- made me a passionate advocate for this was a meeting I had I- in the lobby of the Hilton in Harrisburg that was uh, set up by another senator um, uh, with a woman named Christine Brand, who had a son who has a son, um, Garrett, who has uh, Dravet syndrome, which is an intractable form of epilepsy. Uh, he has uh, dozens and dozens of seizures every day, uh, difficulty cognitively developing or physically developing because they're, they're kids, these kids are seizing all the time. Uh, and we talked about there was a, uh, a little girl in Colorado named Charlotte Figi, who was the first of many, uh, who was given an experimental uh, treatment uh, derivative of cannabis, uh, it was called Charlotte's Web after Charlotte, um, and um, it, it, you know, essentially rendered her seizure-free um, and allowed her to get her life back. And there were a number of other kids, and I start, and there, then I watched a report by Sanjay Gupta on CNN, who was, uh, among other things, President Obama's nominee to be a, a Surgeon General. Uh, and I was like, my God, this is, uh, you know, for some of these parents, this is an absolute miracle. How is it that they would be criminals? I mean, I have children. Uh, you know, you'd have to kill me to stop me from getting medicine to my kid that would make them better. And, and why would we want to make these people criminals? And why would we, would we want to make this so difficult? And then so I got involved in the issue when we had le- introduced legislation uh, uh, and so forth. And then because of my involvement in the issue, I started hearing from all these other people, uh, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder who were like, you know, I was on Clonopin and, and, and uh, Ativan and all these things. And I made, they made me a zombie and I was self-medicating with alcohol and I, I felt like I you know, was suicidal. Then I tried uh, marijuana and I got my life back. I felt like a normal human being again. Uh, and I talked to cancer patients who, you know, uh, uh, medical cannabis enabled them to endure their chemotherapy uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and so forth. And uh, this whole community of people suffering in Pennsylvania needlessly, and it just it made me furious. So I, I, I said, I'm going to do everything I can uh, to, 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 to change this in Pennsylvania. Uh, I put on this green bracelet, which I'm still wearing, which I'm taking off Sunday, uh, and saying I'm not taking taking this off until we get this done. So people ask me about it all the time, so I can talk about it. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, when you look at these, you know, people who are suffering from horrible diseases, 
and you know there's a way to help them, and you know it's being denied. I don't know how any uh, feeling human being would, uh, you know, not be moved by that. Well, let's talk about some of the objections and how those people in the legislature, how the, 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 your colleagues, some of them changed their mind. Uh, you know, what you just said, I'm sure that was one of the biggest arguments for it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, one of the early objections, and really probably maybe some legislators right up until the end, was that the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, had not approved this, that uh, we needed more research. If Why should we do it here in Pennsylvania when the feds haven't approved this yet, even though there are two dozen other states that are doing it right now? So, you know, I, I and I know one of the big, and I know that you're going to give credit to uh, Republican Senator Mike Fulmer, uh, who you know, brought in a lot of his colleagues in his caucus on this as well. But how did you guys change minds in the legislature? Well, first of all, uh, you're absolutely right. Mike Fulmer was uh, was key to this passing. It wouldn't have happened without him. It needed to be a bipartisan effort. Uh, and it, uh, it serves, hopefully, as a model for other legislation in the future that we need to move. Um, but, you know, you're right. People were, were not well-versed on the issue. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the FDA issue. That's sort of a catch-22, uh, because the FDA has not approved it because the federal government says the FDA cannot approve it. It's, it, it be, marijuana is classified as a Schedule One narcotic, it, which means the FDA is not allowed to approve it. That has been the case since 1937. And I, I don't know if you know why. Uh, uh, hemp, which was uh, a, uh, also a cannabis derivative, but from a different strain, you can't get high-smoking hemp. Uh, so there's no psychoactive component to it, but that was seen as an economic threat to people like um, William Randolph Hearst and, and the DuPonts. And so they hired a guy named Harry Anslinger from Pennsylvania who went on a crusade to demonize marijuana. First of all, it was called cannabis then. He changed it, changed it to marijuana, spent a lot of money to do that because marijuana was the, what they called it in Mexico, and it was scarier to white people. And then Harry Anslinger testified before Congress uh, that the, they needed to make this illegal because it makes black people think they're just as good as white people, and it makes black, white women want to have sexual relations with black men. Uh, that was the level of discourse at the time. It wow. had nothing to do with, 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 with you know, study. Uh, marijuana at the time, cannabis, was the second most prescribed drug in the, in the nation. The, uh, the American Medical Association said, you can't make this illegal. It's one of our main tools to help people. But because of the sort of inflamed rhetoric of this, they made it illegal, having nothing to do with studies or anything medical. Um, so it's been that way for 37 years. So the, the FDA can't approve it. Now, that doesn't mean there are, haven't been a ton of studies. Uh, there have been some studies in the United States. The FDA, uh, the federal government, can't fund them because it's a Schedule One narcotic. But there have been an, a, a good number of studies in the United States. And, there, and, of course, the rest of the world does not have this insane policy. So in Israel, Europe, Canada, China, there's all kinds of studies. Uh, and, I mean, literally hundreds of peer-reviewed, double-blind studies that would have resulted in FDA approval um, decades ago if they'd been allowed to do it. I always say if, this, if the medicine from this plant was a derivative of the orchid or cactus or some other plant, it would be in every CVS and Rite Aid in the country. Uh, it would be a no-brainer. It's just that because uh, it's been tied up with these sort of racial 
things at first. Then the culture wars in the 60s, you know, marijuana was tied in with, you know, Jimi Hendrix and burning your bra and burning your draft card and whatever. Uh, and so that became part of that culture war. And it's become entangled in all these other things that have nothing to do with getting sick people medicine. So once we went through that and showed people the studies and showed people the history, they were like, yeah, there really is no reason. And I would say the one thing that helped us is the fact that this is a transcendent issue. I mean, anyone can get sick, Democrat or Republican. Anyone could have a relative or someone they care about get sick. So this isn't like some issue where you can say, well, this involves those people, and I'm never going to be one of those people, and I don't like those people. So, you know, which governs so much of our uh, actions in Harrisburg. This is something that could affect anyone. And so people were like, you know what, if, if, if I was ever in that position, I would want this. And one by one, we changed minds to the point where we passed this 43 to 7 in the Senate, and we don't name bridges 43 to 7 in the Senate. <laughs> and then we passed it 149 to 43 in the House, or 46, I'm sorry, in the House. Overwhelming bipartisan majorities, because people actually, when they saw the evidence and put themselves in that position, they changed their minds. So just to be clear, uh, because you were giving a a bit of uh, the history of this, we're not talking about smoking marijuana. We're talking about the the oil or derivative from the cannabis, correct? Well, there there is a provision for whole plant in the bill. There will be whole plant as soon as an advisory board recommends it, which they will. Um, And you can vape, which is what people do anyway. They don't know. I mean, even recreationally, people don't smoke joints anymore. They vape it. You know, you're familiar. It's a vape pen, which you can smoke tobacco or marijuana out of. Um, And so uh, people will have an opportunity to essentially smoke this because, again, it's important that there are certain conditions for which smoking isn't relevant. For example, kids with epilepsy get oil under their tongue. Uh, but there are certain conditions for which smoking is absolutely necessary. It's the only effective way to deliver it. For example, uh, chemotherapy patients. I mean, you can't give a pill to a chemotherapy patient because they're throwing up every two minutes. They can't. They can't keep it down. They need to be able to inhale it. So, uh, the, you know, that will be. Uh, you know, vaping is explicitly allowed in the bill. Um, and whole plant will be as soon as we get the uh, approval from the advisory board. So Governor Wolf will sign this at 1 o'clock on Sunday. That doesn't mean that uh, this becomes law. Well, it becomes law, but it's not going to be an overnight thing, correct? No, you're right. It's um, there, There's a ramp-up period. I mean, we have to promulgate regulations. Uh, we have to, for example say this is what the application looks like if you want to grow it or if you want to sell it. Um, And then people have to fill out the applications. They have to be approved. Licenses have to be administered. And then you have to get, once you have a license, you have to you know, build a facility to grow it, and then you have to plant it, and it has to grow, and it has to. So it's there. You know, all of this takes time. Uh, there's an approximately an 18 month ramp up period until there's actual dispensaries open in Pennsylvania. However, uh, there is a safe harbor provision which goes into effect 30 days after the bill that says if you can get marijuana legally in another state. You can't be prosecuted for 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 using it in Pennsylvania so long as you have one of the you've been diagnosed with one of the seventeen positions. How do you get if you're, uh, if you're under eighteen? And then after six months, it'll be for everybody. Well, see, I was wondering about that because uh, if you get it in another state and the federal government classifies this as uh, our narcotic, and you're crossing state lines with it, uh, how's that not uh, breaking the law? How do you get away with that? Well, that's a federal offense. And that the federal government can prosecute you if they want, but the state of Pennsylvania will not. 
Okay, so you're still taking a chance if you do that, if you cross state lines. You are. You are. But, I mean, in reality, the federal government doesn't go after possession of small amount cases. You know, they go after, you know, guys bringing in four tons of it, you know, uh, in, in a sailboat. So it's, you know, they're not, if you're a mom with a sick kid and you bring an ounce across state lines, it's unlikely you're going to get, you know, prosecuted by the United States Department of Justice. The bigger risk is that you're arrested by the local, you know, the Pittsburgh police. And under this law, as long as you can demonstrate that you have one of the 17 conditions, uh, that you will not be prosecuted. California was one of the first states that uh, enacted uh, medical marijuana. I remember a 60 Minutes report a couple years ago uh, where they were talking about uh, so many people who all of a sudden uh, had some illness or some medical condition where they were trying to obtain marijuana. How do you keep that from happening here in Pennsylvania? You mean, how do we keep people who aren't really sick from getting right, it? Right, Well, I mean, you because a doctor has to diagnose you and he has to recommend you, to, to the, and then you have to the Department of Health. The Department of Health has to review the application, and you get a, uh, a card that entitles you to pick up certain strains or whatever at a dispensary. Uh, it's the same, you know, it's not a perfect system, nor is it a perfect system to keep people from getting Percocet who don't need it. But how's, uh, it, how's it different than the California where apparently it was abused? Well, I mean, in, in California, they, they literally had, you would walk into a store with, uh, that sold marijuana and, they, and, and there would be a doctor sitting there and you would just say, Doc, I feel blue today. And he'd say, you know what, I can help you. And he'd write a prescription right there and you can go walk across the, the room and get the marijuana. We have a more tightly controlled uh, um, protocol than that, more hoops you got to go through. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so we're, 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 we are more like uh, Illinois, for example, than California. And so it's, uh, you know, will there ever be, quote, abuse? Maybe it, 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 it seems unlikely. For example, um, the, much of the marijuana that is going to be used medically isn't going to be very good for getting high purposes. There's going to be a lot of strains that are high in CBDs and low in THC, THC being the, uh, oil, the, the, the psychoactive component in marijuana. So some won't even get you high no matter what you do with it. And then others will. But you know what? If, you're a, if, you're, if you have post-traumatic st- stress disorder and you smoke it uh, and you get high, uh, you know, you're not any higher than you would be if you were on Oxycontin or if you were on Percocet or if you were on Clonopin. Uh In fact, you're, you're much less high and it's, it's not addictive. And then, you know, there's always a chance that your, you know, your 15-year-old son will break into your medicine cabinet and steal some. But that's true with Percocet. That's not a reason to deny people access to medicine. It's it's just a societal problem, broadly speaking, with all medications, and something that we're working on. We've done the, the uh, you know we've passed legislation to try to address that, address things like doctor shopping and so forth. And you know you do your best. Mm. Uh, a couple more things here, Senator. Sure. Um, is there the potential for a financial windfall for the Commonwealth? Yes, um, and uh, there there will be uh, a financial windfall to the Commonwealth, not only for taxation for the the product, but also for the uh, but 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 also for the filing fees, the application fees, the renew you know the licensing fees. Um, so you know there there will be money coming into the Commonwealth, and uh, 
uh, you know, that, that can be used for anything that the legislature decides it can be used for. Uh, early on, you said that uh, this could be a good example of bipartisanship of how the legislature is supposed to work. Uh, do you think any of your colleagues learned anything here? Did you learn anything about how to work across the aisle with uh, an issue that very early on there was a lot of opposition to, but uh, minds were changed? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you have to sort of, because people have different underlying philosophies. Um, and so you have to appeal to people across the aisle. First of all, it's got to be bipartisan. The only way you can avoid that is if you have one party controlling all of government, and they can just push through their agenda. But that's not the case in Pennsylvania now. Even when they did have that, they couldn't push through much of their agenda under Governor Corbett. So uh, you need bipartisan support. Uh, and how do you get people on the other side of the aisle? You try to appeal to their values. So, you know, here the, we, we, we went to Senator Fulmer, and, and we talked about you know, helping patients and everything. But there's other issues that the, the same approach could work. I mean, just for example, let's take the death penalty. You know, liberals might be against the death penalty because they think it's morally wrong. But going to a conservative and saying, well, it's morally wrong to kill someone who committed murder might not sway them. They, they may not agree with that. But if you go to them and say, we are spending hundreds of millions of tax dollars every year on a system where we haven't actually executed someone who hasn't asked to be executed in 63 years, um, uh, you know, or 53 years, they, 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 you know, a lot, and we've seen recently, for example, in Utah and Nebraska, very, very conservative Republican legislators abolishing the death penalty, not because of the, the reasons liberals would voted for it, but for conservative reasons. Um, you know, minimum wage, you can say, you know, uh, for example, uh, if you support an increase in minimum wage, maybe you don't agree with it for the reasons I agree with it, but, you know, right now we have McDonald's telling workers how to get on food stamps so they can afford to eat, and that's tax dollars you have to spend. And, you know, do, do conservatives really want to spend, raise taxes and spend tax dollars on food stamps so corporations can pay uh, starvation wages? You know, that might be something, I know for a fact it is, because I've been talking to some of them, that appeals to them. So you have to find the, the philosophical hook where you can find the common ground on the, on, the, on the substance of the issue. I think that's the most important thing to do. Rather than just yell at each other, I'm right, I'm right, you know, that's never going to make a difference. You've got to say, I understand you have a different philosophy. Here's why what I'd like to do will, will appeal to your, your way of looking at the world. If you can do that, then you can have some success. Senator Dalen Leach, Democrat who represents uh, parts of Delaware and Montgomery counties. Congratulations, Senator, on the passage of the bill, and uh, thank you very much well, for being you. with us today. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you so thank much. You. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. At-risk young people and poetry, what do the two have to do with one another? more than you may expect in the city of Lancaster. The Mixit Arbor Place is a youth development center in Lancaster that offers an innovative spoken word poetry program and also utilizes hip-hop to encourage students to express themselves, promote literacy, and improve confidence. Joining us today to tell us more about the program is Jeremy Raff, who is Assistant Executive Director at the Mixit Arbor Place, Ty Gant, Program Associate at the Mixit Arbor Place. Welcome both of you to the program today. 
Thanks Thank for having you. us. Thank also you. joining us, we have uh, two of the young people who are involved. Natalia Delgado is co-winner of the Lancaster City Youth Poet Laureate Program. She's also an active member of the We Rock the Mic Program and was part of the team that attended Brave New Voices in Atlanta last year. Uh, Natalia is a sophomore at Lancaster Country Day School. Uh, Natalia, welcome to the program. Get a little closer to the mic, Natalia. There you go. And also, Thea Buckwater, co-winner of the Lancaster City Youth Poet Laureate Program. Thea, along with Natalia, recently awarded the Lancaster City Youth Post Laureate uh, title. She's a um, senior at J.P. McCaskey High School and active in her church community. Thea, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let me turn you guys up a little bit because we uh, have four people in our studio. There you go. That should be a little bit better. All right. First of all, let's talk about uh, the program itself. Uh, the Mix at Arbor Place. What is the Mix at Arbor Place? Uh, the Mix, we're a youth development center in Lancaster City, so we do a bit of everything. Uh, we have an after-school program with about 80 students a night uh, attending. It's a free program. 80 a night. 80 mm -hmm. a night. So sometimes, um, I know last year we got up to a, topped out at 105 one night. Um, um, that was a long day. So <laughs> we, uh, but we do. We have a. You know, right now it's a little lower just because it's end of the year. But a lot of students there. You know, doing free programs. Um, we're home to a lot of different programs, and the We Rock the Mic program has been a big one uh, that's really grown, and we've seen a lot of success. With. So We Rock the Mic is kind of like a sub program yep. yeah. of. Okay, so what is We Rock the Mic? Uh, we Rock the Mic is our spoken word poetry program, where Ty is kind of our main coach for that. And we teach kids creative literacy mm -hmm. and how to be confident in themselves and how to express themselves uh, through spoken word. Mm -hmm. right, yeah. So, Ty, you contacted me about this. I'm glad you did because yeah, yeah, I, as soon absolutely. as I saw it, I thought, okay, that sounds like a, a great program and, and something different. Right. Now, you coach the kids right. on poetry. Right, How do you absolutely. do that? So, I mean, really, we do a lot of writing exercises, but at the same time, I, I really like to focus on performance. I mean, I always tell the kids it's, it's so much more than poetry, and it's a saying that I say all the time because it's about the basic skills. I'm not trying to create a poet. I'm just trying to get them ready for their PowerPoint presentations, They're running for you know class president, heck, running for mayor someday. But any type of um, any type of coaching I can give that that shows the natural skills of growing as a as a respectful human being that's what we're going to implicate so why poetry uh it's a it's a very unique way of uh, of people you know coming together to be honest with you i mean it, words are powerful you know and and you know when you're standing on that stage whether it's you know a, a minute poem or a five minute poem heck even longer you know people you know you have people's attention and and you know you have the power to say and change anything and and you know move mountains so but you, it's it's not one of those things that um I don't know, you, you associate with young people nowadays. Right. I mean, we think about yeah, right. the classics, the classic poets over the years. Right. Uh, but I don't know, do young people now, where does hip-hop come in on this as, as well? Well, that's, and that's part yeah. of why, so, like, I know for us growing up, poetry in classes, it was just very dull and kind of yeah. felt very outdated. And you might find some, like, interesting stuff, but um, we really try and use that as a tool to connect kids um, to hip hop and spoken words, so there's all these amazing, um, you know, hip hop artists um, who also dabble in spoken word, and yeah. it, there's a huge connection between the two. And it's been really cool to see, you know, kids really gravitate when we show them spoken word and like, oh, this is this is like rap, and we're, mm -hmm. like, we're like, yeah, and then we can we can play them. 
you know, a Kendrick Lamar song alongside, um, you know, a Shakespeare poem. And they can And they can evaluate both of them and see, you know, some of the literacy aspects between the two and how they're expressing themselves. And we can teach them how to present. And um, it's been really cool to get kids who probably aren't into poetry, mm-hmm. into poetry, and we're kind of, you know, you kind of like trick them into learning, which is, right, which is right, a right, good way to right, do it. Right. What do they learn? And by the way, Kendrick Lamar follows me on Twitter. Oh, wow. I think he All thinks right. we're, we're related, and I don't think we are. <laughs> well, know. that's actually great news. That's, that's actually really cool news. No. So maybe he's going to tweet this today. Hey, you never well, know. You never know. I mean, honestly, it's, you know, you take those lessons. We were actually just talking about Kendrick Lamar, and, you know, his album itself, you know, it's a it's a story. It's a it's an entire Broadway film. You know, that's, the, I mean, excuse me, Broadway a play, and that's the way that I look at it. So the way that I want these kids to, to really write is to not just make up stories, but to really dig, you know, dig deep down and find these stories that can actually, you know, even stories that are hidden, find these stories that, that are going to change, you know, a lot of things in their community. So they're really just learning to to be advocates for for the youth and through, like I said, through the art of spoken word. It's just about the way that you perform, you know, and well, yeah. Let's talk to a couple of uh, the young people involved. Uh, well, you can you can do yeah. We're going to slide microphones around here. Uh, I'll start with you, uh, Natalia. Uh, how did you get involved in the program? Um, I actually got involved in the program program about like three years ago. Um, the Mix at Arbor Place was having a poetry club, and it was actually like the first time they ever had it. And um, I thought it sounded pretty cool to um, um read about poetry mm-hmm. and talk about poetry and make poetry yourself so um, I decided to join the program and by that program I have been doing so many good things around Lancaster City and I have been competing like I, um, like you said before at BNV uh, the greatest youth um, poet competition So were you interested in poetry when you got involved in the program that's what you attra- attracted you? Um, I actually didn't know much about poetry. I mean, we did read about it in school, and it, I didn't find it kind of amusing. So I joined We Rock the Mic, and it just sparked a love inside of me for it. Okay. So, Thea, what about you? How would you get involved? Um, so I'm more recently involved, and actually um, what happened was I really needed some extra credit in my English ah, class. So there was a motivation <laughs> there. Yeah. And my teacher told me, if you enter this competition, I'll give you some extra credit. And so um, I ended up doing that, not thinking I was going to win, never imagining that, and Mm. then um, come to find out. (laughs) Well, you two are co-poet laureates uh, in in the city of Lancaster for students. What's your specialty? I mean, do you have a specialty as far as uh, what you write about, uh, what you're interested in, in the poetry that you do? Um, for me, poetry, I just write about anything. I could be... You want to do a poem today about this show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right now. <laughs> but um, I do any kind of poetry. Maybe I could just be in my classroom and I'll just think of something and I'll just start writing about it. And it's all about inspiration and it comes from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, give me some examples of some of the things you've written about. Um, I've written about love. I've written about God. I've written, I've written, I've written about um, my experiences around Lancaster. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Thea, what about you? Um, a lot of my poems are sort of political in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm really interested in social justice and then how that ties into my community and where I'm from and, and my background. Um, but I also just appreciate the art itself. So my poems can really be about anything. So I don't know what you're kind of reminding me of some of those places. And this is way too young for you, <laughs> me old for you. But uh, some of those places, like coffee houses in the 60s yeah. and the late yep. 50s where people got together and uh, did their poetry. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of uh, I'm sure you're aware of that that history. Um, yeah. So, I mean, even recently, like I've had. Um, the opportunity I saw Kai Davis, a spoken word poet mm -hmm. who who was very political and, and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, but definitely just um, I always grew up reading like the autobiography of Malcolm X, which isn't spoken word in the traditional sense, but just hearing like speeches like that. Um, are definitely an influence. Okay. All right. So I know what uh, the audience is probably most interested in is hearing some examples of your poetry. So Natalia Delgado, who is uh, one of the co-winners of the Lancaster City Youth Poet Laureate the program, uh, do you have an example of some of your work for us today? Yes, I do. And what, what is this poet called? This poem called? It's called How Am I Supposed to Replace Him? And it's called about, it's about my father figure missing. So... Okay, yeah. go, go ahead. How am I supposed to replace him? There's no words to describe my feelings around him. He's all I ever wanted, but he's missing. It's not enough for him to give me money or presents. All I want is his time and for him to love, him, love me. I want him to embrace me in his arms like he never did before. I want him to say I love you. You see, when I'm around him, I feel secure, but when I'm not, I feel lost, like I'm searching for something, but I can't seem to find it. I hate you. I love you. I don't need you, but I need you. I don't care about you, but I care about you. We're in this love and hate kind of relationship, this selfish kind of relationship. You left me alone not knowing what to do. I needed you, but you only thought about yourself. How am I supposed to replace him? These chains are getting heavier and I'm getting weaker. I've tried to cut them off, but they become thicker. You did this. Made my chains grow bigger. You should have been there for me, giving me your time and your love. Your time and your love, Father. But I'm breaking these chains. Well, that's just, uh, that's very powerful. Thank and you. obviously, it's very emotional for you. Yes. I mean, and I felt your emotion as you were doing that. And it's, that shows that this, this is more than just writing words yeah. on a piece of paper Absolutely. or on Absolutely. a computer, Absolutely. that uh, especially when your inspiration is your own real-life experiences. Uh, Natalia, thank you very much. Thank you. Theo, what, what about you? Um, yeah, so this poem is called Dementia. Um, it's about what it sounds like. Um, she didn't remember Tom's name last week or his kids, the ones who she held on to hold. She puts hand on face. These lines hold history. She never knew that her smiles and frowns were cartographers, but she knows now that these mountains, craters, and riverbeds were earned. When she was young, she feared these dimensions, but time has created a geometry that helps her remember. That again is very powerful, and uh, is that does that come from real life experience? 
Yeah, I have um, family members who have experienced that. I've worked in retirement homes, and my mom's a pastor, so I grew up going on visits with her. So um, it's just interesting seeing how what really makes people people, even when something that's so fundamental like their own memory is gone. And the two of you... This is radio, so I have to describe what it looks like. Uh, you have no papers in front of you reading that. That was from memorization. So uh, do you do that all the time when you're on stage or you're doing, you're, uh, you're reciting your poetry? I say reciting. That sounds like a, you know something that you memorize for elementary school. But uh, when you are performing your, your poems, um, is it all from memory? When I perform my poems, I do it um, from memory. I try it as possible because when you memorize your poems, you actually can add more emotion to it, and it just like shows who you really are when you're saying your poetry. So that's why I like to memorize my poems. I have the sense that this has changed your lives. It really has. Thea, how's it changed your life? Um, it definitely brought me back to... Um, you know, in high school, I think we often get away from from writing for fun. And in general, just we get so busy and caught up in, in other things that um, we don't have time for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So so this is kind of, in a good way, forced me to make some time for myself and, and get back to creativity in a way that also um, aligns with my other passions. Natalia, what about you? How to change your life? Um... I think it changed my life from so much. I I used to go through a lot of things, and poetry is what just have has gotten me out of it. And it's actually my inspiration to do good in school every day and just you know live who I am and actually express myself. Mm. Well. I have to tell you that uh, I'm sure that there are thousands of people out there who are just so impressed and uh, that you've touched this morning. So thank you f- uh, for, for sharing your art with us today. And let me just turn back yeah. to you guys uh, for a moment. I mean, you're to be ing- congratulated because if that's an example of the kind of work that's being done, that is just unbelievable. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. What, yeah. What's so, I mean, I mean, I gotta give all props to Ty. I mean, um, when we, what's so cool, so when we, we came up with this idea a couple years ago, uh, it's hard to believe it now, but Natalia was one of those kids who, um, we had, you know, eight kids, and they didn't even yeah. want to stand up in front of each other yeah. and read two lines. Yeah. And now she, she's gone on, and I'm so proud of her as a sophomore. You know, she has spoken spoke at a church in front of a thousand people doing a memorized poem. I mean, mm-hmm. that's when I was in high school, there was no way I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, the poetry is just kind of a, it's the mechanism to bring about that development where, mm-hmm. you know, now they have, they're so confident. Um, they can express these very personal things. It's just amazing to see. And I'm, I'm really, we're really proud of them and Absolutely. everything they've done. Well, you, you should be. It's, Ty, how to – now, this is just in the city of Lancaster. Yes, sir. I guarantee there are people out there thinking right now that uh, this is something that should be done in other places. But how can young people get involved? Well, I mean, it, it is done in a lot of places in the nation. Um, you know, but we're actually – we're really trying to – we're really trying to create something in Lancaster County that that the entire nation can replicate. And, and – um, 
you know, so obviously you can they can get involved by coming to the mix, but at the same time you can also get in contact with me and I and I you know I've met so many people going to Brave New Voices, um, you know that are in amazing you know all these amazing cities around the you know the country that are doing what we're doing. But Lancaster, it's time. You know, it's it's time uh, for this. And and obviously, in you know the sh- two years that this has been around, it's changed so many lives. Jeremy Raff is the assistant executive director at the Mix at Arbor Place. Ty Gant, he coaches the poets at the Mix at Arbor Place. Uh, <laughs> Natalia Nagata, Delgado and uh, Thea Buckwater, co-winners of the Lancaster City Youth Poet Laureate Program. I want to thank all four of you for being with us today. Of course, yeah, thank I'm you. sure thank we, this will be one of the more memorable programs that we've had. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on uh, Monday, it's our final political debate, 13th District State Senate.